At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 25, 1984, A Dystopian Future. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. So on today's show, we're going to examine George Orwell's 1984, along with his uh, work Animal Farm and other dystopian novels such as Brave New World and We. Uh, We will examine the influence of the Cold War on 1984, and we'll look at how, despite its being a work written in 1949, it still has a message which resonates today. As of this recording, it's again the best-selling book on Amazon, and its publisher has had to order an additional 75,000 printed copies. Before we actually jump into talking about the book, I want to give a mini-bio of Orwell to give some background of who he was and his life experience, which is reflected in the book. Also, I would definitely recommend reading 1984 or at the very least reading the cliff notes before listening to this episode as it will obviously make more sense and contain certain spoilers. George Orwell was a pen name, of course, for Eric Arthur Blair. Orwell is famous for his fiction, but he also wrote literary reviews, poetry, and journalism. His nonfiction works included documenting the experience of working-class life in the north of England and his account of his time in the Spanish Civil War. Orwell was born in the British Raj, or current-day India. Orwell's father worked in the opium department of the Indian Civil Service. His mother had grown up in Burma, where her French father was involved with speculating. When Orwell was one, he moved to England with his mother. Orwell came from a middle-class background. He studied for a time at Catholic school until he could win a scholarship to a British public school. For my American listeners, there is a difference in terms when the British use public because these, quote, public schools represented the elite boarding schools for British children. Through his writing abilities, he won numerous contests and was able to get accepted to Eton, the top private school for boys in the nation. While there, he was actually taught French, briefly by Alex Huxley, who would go on to write The Brave New World. Orwell's grades at Eton were not the best, and his parents couldn't afford to send him to college without a scholarship. So he joined the Indian Imperial Police and was stationed in Burma. While most of his friends were off studying at university, he was responsible for security of some 200,000 people. In Burma, Orwell acquired a reputation as an outsider. He spent much of his time alone reading or speaking with the locals, Orwell even learned the language and could speak Burmese fluently before he left. Later in life, he wrote that he felt guilty about his role in the work of empire and began to look more closely at his own country and saw that England also had its oppressed. Inspired by his time in Burma, he went on to write Burmese Days, 1934, and the essay Shooting an Elephant, 1936. In 1927, he contracted dengue fever and was allowed to return to England. 
Upon returning from India, he decided to resign from the police service and become a writer. In imitation of Jack London, whose writing he had, writings he admired, he started to explore the poor parts of London. He dressed and mingled amongst Britain's working poor. In early 1928, he decided to move to Paris. He lived in a working-class district, while still writing articles for papers and magazines. Orwell's time in Paris was hard. He fell sick and was taken to a hospital for the homeless, and he had his belongings stolen and had to work for some time as a dishwasher and, and do other menial tasks to survive. You have to wonder at this point to yourself, what was he thinking? In the Indian police service, he was, uh, was a powerful figure, and here he was now washing dishes. Later that year, he moved to London, and throughout the rest of the early 1930s, Orwell continued to write and worked odd jobs. Seeing the rise of Franco in Spain in the late 1930s, he felt compelled to join the fighting and left for Spain, ending up in Barcelona. During the war, Orwell was caught up in the f factional fighting between the Marxist and anarchist, which would have a deep impact on his writings. After his time in Spain, he became a critic of Stalin and saw the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact as a betrayal of socialist values. In August 1941, Orwell obtained a full-time job with the BBC Eastern Service. He supervised cultural broadcasts to India to counter propaganda from Nazi Germany designed to undermine imperial loyalty. This experience working in propaganda would also have an impact on Orwell's views of the world and his writings. In September 1943, Orwell resigned from the BBC to write Animal Farm. By April 1944, Animal Farm was ready for publication, but many publishers were hesitant to publish the work since they saw it as an attack on the Soviet Union and Stalin. However, one publisher agreed to publish the book in secret, and it was released to the public in 1945. Animal Farm is a story about how farm animals rise up against the farmer and take control of the farm. Famously, at the beginning of the story, like in the Soviet Union, all animals were equal, but by the end of the story, some animals had become more equal than others. Basically, one hierarchy has been overthrown to rise another. The story, of course, was a parable of how the Soviet Union had been diverted away from a, per a worker's paradise to a Stalinist dystopia. This story was heavily influenced by Orwell's time in the Spanish Civil War. Over the next four years, Orwell returned to journalism. In 1947, his health began to decline as he contracted tuberculosis. However, he began to write his magnus opus, the novel 1984, which he completed just before his death. I want to take a quick break here before we jump into 1984, and thank you again for listening and for sharing the podcast with your friends and family. We greatly appreciate you helping us to get the word out. If you enjoy the podcast and you want to help support the show, check out our website at www.historythecoldwarpodcast.com. While on the website, you can provide feedback through our surveys or email questions, or check out some of the sources I've used in past episodes. If you purchase any of the books there, it helps the podcast and costs nothing extra to you. Additionally, you can also help us to keep the show going by making a financial contribution through Patreon. Your donations help compensate us for the hours and sometimes days we put me and my colleague, David Forrest, spend on putting the show together, buying books, hosting the podcast, the website, and buying other items like bookmarks and mics. We appreciate every donation, and it motivates us to keep going. Even a dollar a month donation helps us as it allows me to purchase bookmarks every month, which runs about $1.27 at Walmart. So if you enjoy the show and are a regular listener, please consider helping us to keep the show going.
Now back to the show. 1984 was influenced naturally by Orwell's experiences in the Spanish Civil War and the Second World War. He was also influenced by Brave New World and We. Brave New World, written by Orwell's friend Alex Huxley, was a dystopian future critique of capitalism set in 2540 or 632 after Ford. We was a Soviet dystopian novel about a world of harmony and conformity within a united totalitarian state written by a Russian writer as a comical critique of the Soviet Union, again set in the future. 1984 is a dystopian future set 40 years in the future from Orwell's own time in Airstrip 1, formerly Britain, and the new superstate of Oceania, comprising the Western Hemisphere, South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand. This, of course, spoke to many British fears at the time and which are still present among some British that Britain, through its alliances with the English-speaking world, especially the United States, would cease to exist as a separate state but become part of some conglomerate English-speaking union with very little control of their own future. Britain's decline in stature is also mirrored in the fact that Britain is renamed Airship One. Famously, during World War II, Britain was called an unsinkable aircraft carrier from which the American 8th Air Force and the British Bomber Command bombed the rest of Europe. In the Cold War, Great Britain continued in this role. As early as 1948, American bombers were once again stationed in Britain. As the Cold War continued, hundreds of American and British bombers were stationed throughout Britain, ready to deliver nuclear weapons into the heart of Europe and the Soviet Union. These airfields would become the sites of much tension during the anti-nuclear movement. Almost the entire world in Orwell's 1984 lives in poverty. Hunger, disease, and filth are the norm. Ruined cities and towns are commonplace. The consequence of the Civil War, the atomic wars, and purportedly enemy rocket attacks. Social decay and wrecked buildings litter the landscape aside from the ministerial pyramids. Little of London was rebuilt. Members of the outer party consumed synthetic foodstuffs and poor-quality luxuries, such as oily gin and loosely packed cigarettes. Something as simple as the repair of a broken pane of glass requires committee approval that can sometimes take up to several years. Of course, this is a critique of the Soviet system. Therefore, people do most of their own repairs. All outer party homes include telescreens, which are like two-way TVs that serve both as outlets for propaganda and to monitor the party members. They can be turned down, but they cannot be turned off. Oceania is an omnipresent surveillance state where the population is managed. Everyone is under constant surveillance, a hallmark of the Second World War and the Soviet Union. As we spoke about in our last episode, MI5 had great powers in monitoring individuals during and after World War II. In Oceania, these telescreens watched everyone in their homes and also allowed the state to beam propaganda into everyone's living room. Telescreens are in every building, accompanied by microphones and cameras, allowing the thought police to identify anyone who might compromise the party's regime. Children are encouraged to inform the officials about potential thought criminals, including their parents, which is something that happened regularly in the Soviet Union and other communist states. In the Soviet Union, Stalin was omnipresent through his photos being in everyone's home, but the state could not truly monitor everyone's activities. I know some of you are saying, so what? It's a picture. How can it be used as a source of surveillance? Well, they actually ran a psychological test at a company where they laid out a dish of candy. Obviously, the candy vanished quickly. 
when they put up a sign over the candy with the with eyes that read, please take only two pieces, the candy took a lot longer to dissipate. I'm sure Orwell in his mind coupled the rise of television with the reality of government surveillance and easily envisioned where it would lead. Although TV did play a, a part in propaganda throughout the Cold War and in shaping the narrative, technologically it never became a device which could spy on its watchers. Nevertheless, this is an issue we are dealing with today. People fear be, being watched from their laptop and the content coming through it, which can radicalize individuals to commit heinous acts. The government has also began to monitor these devices, and some critiques have called this practice Orwellian. Oceana's ideology is called Ingsoc, or English Socialism. Despite the fact that socialism is in the name of the ruling ideology and that Insoc had many socialist qualities, the party actively disavows socialism. And this is an example of what is called doublethink. Doublethink is a, the combination of contradictory ideas. Doublethink allows people to believe what they otherwise would know is false. A classic and great example of this is Santa Claus. Adults who know that, know that Santa is a myth and pretend to children and on some level even to each other that he is real to maintain the illusion for children to behave. Therefore, with the party's ability to change history, truth, brainwashing, and torture, reality is whatever the party decides at any particular moment. This may seem like a strange facet and fictional aspect of the book, but Orwell copied this from the Nazis or Hitler's National Socialist Movement which, again, had socialism in its name, but disavowed the beliefs and teachings of Marx. Even though many similarities existed between the Nazis and Soviets, both societies were highly militarized, both curbed personal freedoms, both systems privileged the state over the individual, and both systems erected cults of personality. Doublethink and manipulation of history were big facets of the Soviet Union. Stalin had books and newspapers altered to make history fit his and the party's purposes. Winston Smith's job in the Ministry of Truth, changing newspapers to fit the party's narrative, was a role that actually existed in the Soviet Union. North Korea today still practices the process of doublethink and state control. Science and empirical data were also removed from the society as concepts and words, again, so that the party may have absolute control over the truth. In the Soviet Union, genetic research was virtually banned until 1953 as it didn't fit in line with Stalin's ideology. We see current-era attacks on the integrity of science from both the left and the right. Many deny the existence of climate change despite the vast majority of climate scientists and scientific institutions advocating the theory, whereas some on the left have attacked science and by extension the scientific method as a Western colonial repressive construct devoid of truth. You may be thinking, are the people of Oceania that blind and dumb? In a way, yes. Most people are purposely left uneducated by the regime, and life in Oceania is all they have ever known, especially if you're less than 30. Stalin supposedly said, I would not give my enemies rifles. Why would I give them books? This in many ways goes back to one of the earliest allegories in philosophy, Plato's Cave. If you were born in a cave and believe the shadows reflected on the wall are your masters, how would you ever know any different until you left the cave? It's like the Matrix minus Neo. Another method of control is words themselves. The regime controls the language as it is officially called newspeak. 
Newspeak restricted grammar and limited vocabulary, a linguistic design meant to limit the, the freedom of thought, personal identity, self-expression, free will, that ideologically threatens the regime and thus criminalizes such concepts as thought crime or having politically incorrect thought. Newspeak was again a critique of the Soviet Union and its control of the society, specifically Pravda, the Soviet state-run newspaper. Yet today I think it has taken on new residence as we deal with words and terms such as PC culture, fake news, alternative facts, illegal immigrants, or undocumented workers. Clearly words have become a battle in our political discourse. We don't have a repressive state ruling us, yet freedom of speech and expression seem to be under a threat as many people now argue for limits to free speech. Who should limit what language and how should it be limited if at all, are questions outside the scope of this podcast, but Orwell saw these restrictions as clearly dangerous. In Oceania, all knowledge, meaning, and value exist only in the collective mind of the party. Reality is whatever the party says it is. Hence the need for the Ministry of Truth and Historical Revision, for he who controls the past controls the future. Oceania is led by Big Brother, who might or might not be a real person, Again, similar to the cults of personality that dominated politics in the 1930s. Big Brother is a symbol of the ideological movement and the focal point of for love, fear, and loyalty. Mao, in many ways, would become the greatest embodiment of this figure as millions followed his commands without question, no matter how strange or contradictory. As the government, the party controls the population with four ministries. The Ministry of Peace, which deals with war and defense. The Ministry of Plenty, which deals with economic affairs, mainly rationing and starvation. The Ministry of Love, which deals with law and order, torture and brainwashing. The Ministry of Truth, which deals with, newspaper, with news, entertainment, education, and art, or propaganda. Oceania society was comprised of three levels. The highest level was the inner party. The second was the outer party. And finally, the proles were the lowest level of society. The inner party makes policy and governs. Among their upper-class privileges is the ability to turn off their telescreens if they feel like it, although no party member has turned off their t TV for more than 30 minutes. They live in spacious, comfortable homes, have good food and drink, personal servants, speedy transportation such as personal helicopters and automobiles, while outer parties, members, and proles are banned from owning any vehicles. And no outer party member or parole may enter an inner party neighborhood without pretext. Despite their insulation and overt privileges, inner party members are not exempt from the brutal restrictions of thought and behavior imposed on all party members. They can be tortured, executed, and erased from memory. Inner party members make up less than 2% of the population of Oceania. The outer party members work in the state's administrative jobs, consisting of the educated workers who are responsible for the direct Im implementation of the party's policies while having absolutely no voice in their formulation. They are an artificial middle class, essential to the success of the party, but who are tolerated only in severely hostile conditions. Outer party members are allowed no vices other than cigarettes and victory gin, and they are the citizens most spied upon. This is because the regime believes they are the most dangerous. They are the ones whose combination of intellectual ability with limited power means that they are the most likely to incite revolution against the ruling class. This, of course, has some basis in truth. 
much of the Bolshevik and other revolutionary leaders had middle-class backgrounds. They are therefore expected to sustain a continuous patriotic frenzy for the party, blindly accepting all while living in run-down neighborhoods, in an ongoing state of near starvation with meager rations of poor food and drink. Outer party members are also expected to abstain completely from sex other than for strictly uh, procreative uh, purposes within marriage, since to allow sex in any less restrictive forms would permit self-actualization, individual intimacy, and expenditure, expenditure of personal energy to non-official purposes, all of which are completely against the party's agenda. The outer party makes up about 13% of the population. The proles are the lowest class of workers performing the bulk of the manual labor required in Oceania. They live in the poorest conditions, but they may be considered more fortunate than the outer party members. They are not under any surveillance by the party. The party keeps them happy and sedates them with alcohol, gambling, sports, sexual promiscuity, and pornography. They are kept uneducated and rendered incapable of gaining any sophisticated view of their own lives or of society and are therefore considered harmless lacking any greater will or consciousness than you would be typically ascribed to an animal. They are not required to install telescreens in their homes since they can't afford ones anyways. A few undercover agents of the Thought Police do work with the proles to, make sh to mark down and eliminate any prole individuals deemed capable of becoming dangerous. Proles make up about 85% of Oceania's population. Party propaganda proclaims its egalitarianism, yet the proles and some members of the outer party are hideously exploited and live in poverty, while the ruling elite, the inner party, work little and live well and comfortably. However, people don't live like this because of lack of resources. Rather, the party prefers to spend the surpluses on endless wars in the disputed zone. If the party chose, all of its people could live in luxury, but they instead choose to lower the quality of living. It is important that the lower classes remain stupefied by poverty and the struggle for mere survival. If they were to become too comfortable, they might learn to think for themselves and rebel against the party. Oceania's power structure is in many ways a critique, again, of the Soviet Union. Despite the Soviet Union's goal of becoming a classless society, it created a new class system. High party members acquired wealth, ensured that their children had to have a high position in the party, establishing a new ruling class which replaced the old Tsarist ruling class. Basically, the only goal of the party in Oceania is power entirely for its own sake. It's not interested in the good of others. It's interested solely in power. This is in many re respects resonates with Foucault's thoughts around power. Foucault, a famous French philosopher, argued that modern society is a disciplinary society meaning that power in our, our time is largely exercised through disciplinary means in a variety of institutions, prisons, schools, hospitals, militaries, etc. Surveillance is, of course, a natural part of this society. This is also reflected by the fact that the ministries are the only operable buildings in London that are not in ruins. They are described as a t a thousand foot high pyramids that hover over the landscape, symbols of power in a broken world. Oceania is locked in a perpetual war with Eurasia and East Asia, two other great superstates. Alliances between the states are always shifting as they, became, as they were between the U.S., Soviet Union, and China during the Cold War. China began the Cold War as an ally of the Soviet Union and later more or less shifted to become a quasi-ally of the United States. Like Oceania, 
both Eurasia and East Asia lived under sinister ideologies. Neo-Bolshevism was the ideology of Eurasia or Soviet-conquered Europe. Death worship or obliteration of the South was the ideology of East Asia. The ruling oligarchies of the three superstates were aware that their ideologies were philosophically indistinguishable, a fact kept from their populaces through doublethink. It's not entirely clear how this all came about, namely because of the subsequent historical record was so manipulated by the new regime. Moreover, given the extent of manipulation and rewriting of history, even high party members may be hazy on what actually happened. Nevertheless, from what we can understand, there was a nuclear war in the 1950s between the West and the Soviet Union. The war left all sides mutilated, and in the aftermath, these new, to more totalitarian regimes constituted themselves. That being said, it appears that these superstates realized that the head to head confrontation between the superpowers was too destructive. Yet at the same time, the regimes could only justify their existence through perpetual conflict on a minor scale in a zone termed the disputed territories, which compromised roughly the developing world. Ironically, much of this would speak to what happened in the Cold War. Unlike in Orwell's world, the superpowers realized atomic warfare was a losing proposition and instead fought proxy wars in the developing world. I would also point out that both the United States and the Soviet Union justified many questionable acts, saying that they were just necessary in light of the struggle between the two states. The U.S. justified its presence in Vietnam in the context of the Cold War, as did the Soviets in Afghanistan. Both sides also spent billions on defense, which could have been used for economic and social development, but again, these expenditures were viewed as necessary because of the Cold War. The protagonist in 1984, Winston Smith's name is a combination of Winston Churchill, probably the most famous Englishman, and the most ordinary last name, Smith. So, in a way, even the main character is an example of doublethink. He is someone and no one at the same time, someone special yet also nameless. Smith, a member of the Outer Party, works in the records department of the Ministry of Truth as an editor revising historical records to make the past conform to the ever-changing party line and deleting references to unpersons or people who have been vaporized, not only killed by the state but denied existence even in history or memory. A member of the middle class or outer party, Winston lives in a one-room London apartment flat. His food consists of black bread, synthetic meals, and Victory-branded gin. Winston begins a secret journal writing down his feelings, which is in essence a thought crime since it's thought not provided by or approved by the state. In this journal, he contrasts the differences between the propaganda that the party projects and the real world they live in. Hence, he reaches a moment of self-actualization where he writes in his journal, 2 plus 2 equals 4. As crazy as this seems, in most communist states, having a journal was a dangerous prospect as your personal thoughts could very easily be used against you and this did happen countless to countless people. Even the process of having personal thoughts could be seen as an act of individuality against the community and the state. He also meets Julia, a young woman who passes him a letter secretly. She tells him that she loves him and they begin a romantic relationship, which is a serious crime since the party sees love as a misallocation of energy and resources and something that may lead one away from the party. Sensing that they may be caught at any moment, Winston promises to himself that no matter what, he will still love Julia, and that this is something they can't take away from him. This again may seem like a bizarre twist of fiction, 
But in communist China, for example, public shows of affection like hand-holding, hugging, and kissing were limited and repressed. Winston is approached by O'Brien, an inter-party member whom Winston believes is an agent of the Brotherhood, a secret underground society that intends to destroy the party. They arrange a meeting at O'Brien's flat where both Winston and Julia swear allegiance to the Brotherhood. A week later, O'Brien clandestinely sends Winston a copy of, quote, the book, which, which explains the concept of perpetual war, the true meaning of the slogans, war is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength, and how the party can be overthrown through the means of the political awareness of the poros. In a surprising turn of events, the thought police capture Winston, along with Julia, in their rented room. The two are then delivered to the Ministry of Love for interrogation. It turns out O'Brien is also an agent of the Thought Police. He is a part of a special sting operation used by the police to find and arrest suspected thought criminals. One has to wonder if the Brotherhood even is even a real resistance movement or just a false flag operation to catch people like Winston. O'Brien interrogates and tortures him with severe beatings, breaking his bones and teeth, and Winston is then subjected to electroshock, telling him that Winston can cure himself of his insanity, and the manifest hatred for the party. Winston confesses to the crimes that O'Brien tells him to say that he has, com has committed, but O'Brien understands that Winston has not betrayed Julia. O'Brien sends him to room 101 for the final stage of re-education, a room which consists of each prisoner's worst nightmare. Winston shouts, do it to Ju Julia, as a wire cage holding hungry rats is fitted onto his face, thus betraying her. Eventually, O'Brien convinces Winston to believe that 2 plus 2 is 5, basically suffocating Winston's self-actualization. He ceases to be a reasoning person and becomes a worker drone once again. His mind was, has been broken, and he's, although he's alive physically, mentally he's no longer the same person. This illustrates the power of the state control. Anyone can be broken. It's only a matter of time. After being put back into society, Winston meets Julie in a park. She admits that she also was tortured, and both reveal betraying the other. Later, Winston sits alone in the Chestnut Tree Cafe, troubled by memories which he is sure are lies. Winston feels that at last he has ended his stubborn, self-willed exile from the love of Big Brother, a love Winston returns to quite happily as he looks up in admiration of a portrait of Big Brother. This naturally reflects the control the cult of personality had over millions of people. Even if they had been horribly tortured and or wronged, they never blamed Stalin or Mao. It was always a mistake by themselves, a misunderstanding, or someone else who had falsely accused them to Stalin or Mao. Very few chose to believe that their leader had actually betrayed them. The classic contrast encountered in 1984 was Brave New World. Both stories were set in a future London, and both in which strict class system had survived. However, the world is unified in Brave New World in contrast to the endless wars of 1984. Although it could be argued that the world is united through the three oligarchies who wage a continuous war to ensure their position. Thus, the wars are not real wars but merely organized distractions to keep themselves in power. However, it's not clear that the three leaderships are working that closely in unison. In Brave New World, the world state is built upon principles of Henry Ford's assembly line, mass production, homogeneity, predictability, and consumption of disposable consumer goods. The world state lacks any supernatural-based religions, 
From birth, members of every class are indoctrinated by recorded voices repeating slogans while they sleep to believe that their own class is superior but that the other classes perform needed functions. Any residual unhappiness is resolved by antidepressants and hallucinogenic drugs called soma. The world state operates a command economy in which prices, production, and trade are all regulated by the state. Furthermore, the economy is based on the principles of mass production and mass consumerism. Citizens of the world state have access to a vast array of high-quality foods, goods, and services, whilst the manufacture and provision of these goods and services creates jobs for all members of society. In order to enhance consumerism and to keep the economy strong, people are encouraged to throw away old or damaged possessions and buy new ones. Mass consumption still exists today, and predictability is something that we have been working on with artificial intelligence and predictive analytics. But homogeneity is something that has not yet been achieved. This is what some have called culture or globalization, a belief in a global system of liberal progressive governance, free trade, a liberal secular system of law, mass consumerism, a liberal definition of human rights, where racism, religion, and traditional beliefs are marginalized. Both books deal with the theme of truth. Orwell feared that truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. In 1984, Orwell saw the state controlling people by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In other words, Orwell feared that the state and technology will consume us. Huxley, on the other hand, feared that our desires will ruin us. I think although neither account are, are true, both hold insights into our own time. The news is made insensible by a sea of irrelevant cat videos and memes. Nevertheless, the manipulation of news and planting of fake news hides the truth from us. It traps us in a proverbial funhouse of mirrors, making it difficult to focus. In conclusion, 1984 illustrates the value of truth, facts, and history, and what it looks like when those forces are no longer hold sway in a society. As a document from the early Cold War, 1984 had many insights into the future of the Cold War and even our own society. Issues around technology, freedom of speech, and how we understand truth and reality are questions that inform our own era as much as they did the Cold War. I want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast, Episode 25, 1984, A Dystopian Future. Remember to stay tuned for our next episode, April the 15th, as we examine the fall of the British Raj and the rise of early Cold War India. Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, to tell your friends about us. If you don't have a lot of friends in history but still want to help us, give us a positive review in iTunes or whatever platform you prefer. As always, of course, if you wanted to make a financial contribution in supporting the show, please go through Patreon on our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Any donation size is accepted and appreciated, and if you have a moment, fill out our survey there to help us to bring you a better show.
At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.